Because it, the book of Hebrews kept saying, if people rejected Moses' authority and Moses' teaching and what Moses said about God, they were disciplined. They were cut off from the people of Israel. They were left in the wilderness to die. And he says, if those people who disrespected and usurped against Moses receive that kind of punishment, what kind of punishment will we receive if we reject and usurp the teaching and message of Jesus? If we say, I'm just not real keen on this, Jesus, what you have to say about God. It's a double-edged sword. It goes on to say that Moses' words, they changed the whole world. They created a people out of a bunch of slaves. But Jesus' word is sharper than any two-edged sword, capable of bringing life. And all this has been important. All of this has been building in Hebrews. This is what the first um, several chapters in Hebrews have been trying to show us. And yet now we get to this thing that Hebrews is trying to build to us and pointing towards from the very beginning and really wants to say maybe it's one of the most important themes. Maybe the central message of Hebrews is this, that Jesus is our high priest. Hebrews has already said this. First it said it in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. It said Jesus had to be made like us, fully human in every way, in order that Jesus might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for his people. And then it says again in just the next chapter, in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, it says, it told you and I to fix our thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as, the, as our apostle and our high priest. Then Hebrews chapter 4 told us several things about Jesus' characteristics, the kind of priest that Jesus is. We learned that Jesus is an empathetic high priest, and so he understands you and your predicament. He understand, understands all your unhealthy coping mechanisms. He understands how your sin feels like a good decision at the time. He understands your wounds and your pain because he's lived a fully human life. We understand that Jesus is a faithful high priest, meaning he's never just going, he's not just doing it because he has to. He's doing it because he has faith in God and because he is faithful to you, because he loves you and keeps your best interests at heart. We learn that Jesus is gentle and merciful, and so that whenever sinners come to him, he is gentle and merciful. Jesus, uh, we learn that Jesus uses his connection with God to pray for and intercede for others. And we learn that Jesus didn't make himself high priest. This isn't something he claimed for himself, but it was something that he was given, that he was selected by God as a priest in order to connect other people to God, to make known God's great love. Jesus is our great high priest. And this is important because only a high priest can make atonement for sin. Only priests can make atonement for sin. Our greatest need is not uh, to live in a democracy. It's not to have food, but to have the guilt inside of our souls assuaged, to have the wrongs uh, that we've committed made up for. And Jesus is our high priest. But there's one problem with this sentence. There's one really glaring problem that everybody reading the book of Hebrews or hearing this sermon preached knows. And it's one that you and I don't recognize because we're not all Jews. We didn't grow up inside of Judaism. But the people listening to this sermon for the first time would be thinking the whole time, priest, 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 there's a problem here. There's a problem here. The high priest... And for that matter, all priests must come from the tribe of Levi. Levi was one of the 12 sons, 12 sons of uh, Israel. 
And when Moses gets the law from God, only Levites can serve in the temple. And then specifically, only Aaron's family, Moses' older brother, Aaron, only Aaron and his descendants can be priests. They're called the Kohanim. K-O-H-A-N-I-M. It comes from the Hebrew word K-O-H-E-N. Kohanim. Like Kohen. Like, and you know that name. C-O-H-E-N. There's a bunch of people who have that name. It means priest in Hebrew. Right? So anybody you meet with Kohen, C-O-H-E-N. Their last name just means priest. The high priest was called the Kohen Gadol. It means just high priest. And only Aaron's family could be priests. But Jesus was not from Aaron's family. Jesus is from the tribe of Judah. Jesus is descended from another one of Israel's sons, from Judah. And Judah's family is never mentioned about priests. We're going to see, you'll see this in Hebrews chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. The author is going to insert this. He's going to say, no one from the tribe of Judah has ever been a priest. The people from the tribe of Judah, they're kings, they're, they're rulers, but they're not priests. So Hebrews keeps inserting a phrase over and over again to prepare us for this question. The author of Hebrews knows this question has happened. You can't call Jesus a priest because he's not a Levite. How could he be a priest if he's not a Kohanim, if he's not from the tribe of Aaron? It's not possible. And so Hebrews keeps inserting this little phrase again and again. A priest forever, quote, in the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek, M-E-L-C-H-I-Z-E-D. E-K. Melchizedek. It'll be in your Bible. You'll see it in just a second. The reason I haven't read it yet is because I'm going to work through it line by line in just a second. In the order of Melchizedek. Again and again, we see this, this phrase, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. What the author of Hebrews is actually doing is quoting Psalm 10. You may want to turn there real quick. It's in the middle of your Bible. Psalm 110. Psalm 110. Um, he's quoting Psalm 110. We know that the author of Hebrews is intentionally quoting Psalm 110 because he quotes several different passages from the same psalm over and over and over again. Psalm 110 is clearly is clearly a psalm about the Messiah. What Christians call a messianic psalm. It's a psalm about the Messiah or the Christ or the one God would send to make everything right. It's clearly about the coming of the Messiah King who will rule over the world as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, who will judge the world, destroying all evil and evildoers. And the psalm starts with these words, if you're there. Psalm 110, verse 1, says this. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Any guess what the most quoted verse in the Old Testament is in the New Testament? The verse that the New Testament quotes more than any other verse. I'll give you a clue. The second most quoted is, love your neighbor as you love yourself. That's pretty important verse. The most, the, the most quoted Old Testament verse is that one, Psalm 110, verse 1. It, it appears in the New Testament over 27 times. Seven of the nine New Testament authors quote this verse, applying it to Jesus. This psalm, Psalm 110, is foundational to how the New Testament church, how Christians understood who Jesus was. And it was foundational to Jesus' understanding of himself. 
You see, Jesus actually quotes this psalm about himself in Matthew chapter 22. In Matthew chapter 22, uh, the Pharisees come together and they're trying to uh, test Jesus. And they ask him a bunch of hard questions. And he answers every one of them perfectly. And then he finally says, let me ask you a question. He says, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is the Messiah? And all the Pharisees reply with the correct answer. The Messiah is the son of David. And Jesus said to them, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, called him Lord? For David said in Psalm 110, the Lord says to my Lord, sit down at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David called him Lord, how can he be David's son? You see what Jesus is saying? Is Jesus is saying, King David called someone Lord. King David called someone King. King David had a king. Everybody's thinking, who could be greater than King David? Only the Messiah, the one who is coming, the one who is both a son of David, according to genealogy, but is the king of David, the lord of David, according to origin. That the king coming will not just be a king in the line of David, another human king like David, but the king coming is the king of David, something wholly greater than and very other, something wholly greater than every other king, something every other king points toward. He is the one that King David called him. He's the Messiah. And so everyone in the New Testament fixes on the kingship parts of this psalm. If you're looking at Psalm 110, it says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Then it says, The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on the day of battle, arrayed in holy splendor. Your young men will come to you like dew from the morning. It's all about a king. It's about this incredibly powerful king who has God's authority and who sits down at God's right hand, who sits next to God. And then in verse 4, it says this. It says, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. That's odd. We're talking about a king, and now we're talking about a priest. Those things don't go together in the Old Testament. And then you get to... Verse 5, it says, The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole world. He will drink from a brook along the way, and so he will lift his head high. Then it turns back to the king again. You see again, he says, The Lord is at your right hand. You will crush kings. It goes, King, 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 Priest, King, King, King. It actually goes, King, 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 Melchizedek, King, king, king. It's odd to sit here and think about, but the New Testament authors, every time uh, they think about Psalm 110, every other author in the New Testament thinks about the king parts of Psalm 110. Only the book of Hebrews fixates on verse 4, which is this, this enigmatic line about Melchizedek. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Only Hebrews fixes, tries to deal with this Melchizedek piece. Look at it. Melchizedek just shows up in the middle, like I just said. It shows up without any comment. You would expect an explanation or an expansion. You would expect him to say something like verse 4 and then to explain what he means or what the priest will do or why Melchizedek and not Levi or not Aaron. 
And so you read this thing, and every uh, Jewish audience and every Christian audience has been left wondering, so who is this Melchizedek, and who is the priest, and why do we need a different priest than the Aaronic priest that we already got? Why do we need somebody other than the, the priests that are already in the temple? And these are all the right questions. And Hebrews is led there very logically because he knows Psalm 110 is about Jesus, but he can't. He wants to figure out what this piece means. And it's really important for us to understand our salvation to get this piece. So Hebrews turns to the only other place in the Bible where Melchizedek appears. Melchizedek only appears two places in the Old Testament. The first is or the one we just looked at, Psalm 110, and the other one is Genesis chapter 14, which Colleen just read for us. In Genesis 14, just to summarize, a band of four kings led by a dude named Kedar Loomer. I'm informed this week that I say dude more than any other preacher, um, and that's okay with me. Uh, Kedar Loomer uh, is a warlord, and he collects several other warlords. If you've seen that uh, a, the AME um, series Vikings, it looks like that. They're small bands of raiders, and they go on a raiding party south, and they take over a vast swath, swath of land including the kingdoms of Sodom and Gomorrah. And five local kings band together to try to defeat these raiding bands, including the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. And they try to fight them, but they're defeated. And so the invaders carry off all the money, all the cattle, and all the people as slaves back to their land, including a man named Lot, who is Abraham's nephew. And Abraham hears that his nephew Lot has been captured as war spoils and taken as a slave. And so Abraham goes to his rescue. Abraham calls up 318 of his trained fighting men, and then he gets his allies together, and they go uh, run these people down. They hunt them down. And then he does something crazy. He divides his forces, and instead of attacking them face-to-face uh, -face in lines versus lines, they attack guerrilla warfare style like the Patriots. And they um, attack them, and they take them over, and they get back all of the goods, all the money, all the families, all the women, all the cattle, all the children, including Lot and all his possessions. And Abraham and his army, who had just run 120 miles, are walking back. After fighting and, and battling, and they're walking back, and they're exhausted. And it says two people come out to see them. And one of them is this man, Melchizedek. One of them is this man, Melchizedek. And it just said what we saw a minute ago. It says, Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Melchizedek was a priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abraham, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. And then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. I'm not going to break down these verses um, for you because Hebrews does it perfectly. The book of Hebrews, the letter, uh, this, this great sermon is going to study these scriptures very, very carefully. And so just watch with me how Hebrews studies the Bible. And what we're going to learn here is two applications. Two applications. From this whole thing, you're going to get a lot of information that will be really helpful for understanding the rest of the book of Hebrews and the grand story of the Bible. And the two things I hope happen is one, you learn how to study the Bible better, the whole Bible, in light of Jesus. And the second is that you learn to worship Jesus in, as better and bigger than you ever realized. That Jesus is the one who every single art of the Bible is pointing towards. That every story in the Bible whispers his name. And you learn to worship Jesus as better 
than you ever realized, as bigger and deeper and, and more profound than you ever have, have let yourself feel. The weight of this, the weight of God's eternal plan that God has put details in place at every stage of human history to point to Jesus, to prepare us for Jesus, should make us fall down and worship. But first, we're going to see how Hebrews does this. Hebrews just studies the Bible. It's almost like we get to read somebody's quiet time, somebody's personal devotional time in the morning. Look at this. Hebrews chapter 7. If you're still there, you need to flip back to it. Hebrews is about this far of the way through the Bible, 85% of the way through the Bible, Hebrews. If you get to the book of James, you went too far. First, look what Hebrews does. Now, you won't see this in this place specifically, but just earlier in the book, Hebrews writes down the verse that it's studying verbatim, that you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. It writes that out verbatim. First step when you study the Bible is just to write out the verse you're studying or the most important verses of that section you're studying. You just write it out. And then the second thing Hebrews does in verse in chapter 7 is it summarizes the scripture in his own words. You see this? The very, it starts with it. Verses 1 through 3, it says, Then Melchiz- this Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings, and he blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. Stop. The first two things that Hebrews does when he studies the Bible is he writes out the verse verbatim, and then he summarizes it in his own words. When you study the Bible, these are the first two steps. You write out the scripture that you're studying, or at least the verses that you think are most important, and this will help hide the words in your heart. This will help you memorize it as you write it down. As an aside, Melchizedek only shows up in this Genesis 14 passage. His name only appears one time in the entire Bible, until until Psalm 110. personal reading guide. Can you imagine how well you would know the Bible if you hand-copied the entire thing? Like, isn't that incredible? David knows about Melchizedek because he copied Genesis 14. And then he does that crazy thing I just told you. He summarized it in his own words. You see how Hebrews just tells you the story? In your quiet times, in your time studying the Bible, make sure you're retaining it by forcing yourself to write it down from memory. Just to tell the story in your own words. What did the Bible say? If you were going to tell this story to your wife or your kids or your neighbor or that co-worker, how would, how would you tell this story? In your own words, would you say the word dude? There was a dude named Ketoloamer. Because I would. You probably wouldn't. You probably said there was a king. So you write it in your own words. Now look what Hebrews does next. Hebrews is going to work through every detail very, very slowly and very, very carefully. First, Hebrews, uh, first it says this, right? We're still in verse, we're still in verse 2. Chapter 7, verse 2, it says, First, 
the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Then also, king of Salem means king of peace. Stop just for a second. He says, first, Melchizedek means king of righteousness. He breaks it down. Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Friends, it's important to stop and think about this. The author of Hebrews speaks Greek. He reads the Bible in Greek. He worships in Greek. We know this from the way he quotes the Old Testament. But he stops, and he thinks about what the word meant in the original language. He stops to think about what the word looks like in Hebrew. You see, Melchizedek in Hebrew is a combination of two words. The first is that melk word, that M-E-L-E-C-H, or in Hebrew it would be the, the, just the consonants M-L-K. M-L-K is uh, the word for king. And then the last part of that word is zedek, Z-E-D-E-K in English, or in Hebrew it would just be the consonants Z-D-K. Those consonants are the consonants for righteousness. And so you put them together, his name literally means the king of righteousness. And then he stops to think about the man's title. This man is called the King of Salem. And Salem was an actual place. It actually still is a real place, a place you can go to and visit, ground you can pick up. It is a, a real place. It was very likely the same place that would later become Jeru-Salem. Jerusalem. Jeru-Salem. You see Salem in Jerusalem and Salem here? Almost certainly the same place. That's very, very interesting for David and for Jesus that this man is the king of Jerusalem. Jerusalem. But Salem comes from the Hebrew word S-L-M, S-L-M, which we most often pronounce in English shalom, which means peace or wholeness or flourishing or vibrancy. And so he looks at it and he says, so Melchizedek is both the king of righteousness and the king of peace. And he lives in Jer and he reigned in Jerusalem. Anybody getting excited? Because Hebrews is getting pumped. Hebrews is like, dude, king of righteousness, king of peace, Jerusalem. I know a man. I know a man. Murdered in Jerusalem, the true king of righteousness. Murdered to make us all righteous. Murdered to give us peace. He starts to think, who is the true king of righteousness? Well, Romans 3 21 through 24 tells us that apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. And what is that righteousness? It's the righteousness given through faith in Jesus Christ, whom God presented as an atoning sacrifice to all who believe. The righteousness of God. Who's the king of righteousness? Jesus is the king of righteousness. Of course he is. And so he sees that and he gets excited. And then he remembers Romans chapter 5, which says that we have this peace with God, that we have been justified by faith in Christ Jesus, that we have peace with God by the justification of Jesus. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Jesus is the true king of shalom, the true shalom bringer. And look, guys, I know that you don't know Hebrew or Greek beauty of right now is you don't have to know Hebrew or Greek because there are a lot of online resources where you can look up important words. I'll give you two. My first, the, the, my favorite, the easiest one to use and the one that you can go to on your phone. I know Dent uses it. He showed it to me one day. It's called BibleHub.com. B-I-B-L-E-H-U-B dot C-O-M. 
BibleHub.com. You can search for a verse in the Bible, and then there's a little button that says Lexicon. You click on the Lexicon button, and it will break down that verse word for word in the original language, giving you translations of every single word in it, and then links to see where that word appears in e anywhere else in the entire Bible. So you can stop and click on a word, and you can look at the etymology of this word. Things like, did you know that the, the, the name Bethlehem, the place where Jesus was born, Bethlehem is the name of a place, but when you read it in Hebrew, it takes a minute to realize it's talking about a place because it, Bethlehem literally means house of bread. The sentence just says, Mary and Joseph went to the house of bread. It's hard to not put it back together. You can figure this stuff out using BibleHub.com. It will help you get to that. It will allow you to do this. My other favorite place that's super easy to use is one called PreceptAustin.org. Precept, P-R-E-C-E-P-T, PreceptAustin, A-U-S-T-I-N dot O-R-G. Precept Austin. Precept Austin is a site put together by a medical doctor who has studied the Bible individually and worked really hard. He's got, and he's assembled some of the most incredible resources I've ever seen. And he's created a verse-by-verse -verse commentary on much of the Bible, an unbelievable amount of the Bible. Just this guy working in his off spare time. I don't know if he's single or got kids. I have no idea. But goodness gracious, a lot of work. And he will work through a verse with you, for you, help you. And he will compile definitions of key words. He'll compile quotes from other sermons. He'll quote, compile quotes from the best commentaries he's read. He'll compile uh, great articles from Our Daily Bread that are relevant to this. Uh, it's an incredible place that I spend a lot of time just waste, not wasting time, learning from. But now Hebrews, so what Hebrews has been doing, stop, pause, back to the text. Hebrews just asked the question. They wrote it down. Then they summarized it, and then they asked the question, what does it say? What does it say? What does the Bible say? And now he's going to ask a question that is not obvious at first. And see what he says right here in the end of verse 3? He says, in verse 3, he says, Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling son, the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. It's an odd sentence. But how he gets there is Hebrews notices what is not in the text. First he asks, what does the Bible say? And then he asks the question, what does the Bible not say that I expected it to say? What is not there that I would have put there if I were writing the Bible? This is an important question for all of us because if you and I wrote the Bible, we would just muck it up. And God omits stuff in the Bible intentionally to, add, to surprise us, to keep it from, because it's God, so you all are asked a question. What does he not say? Like what did, anytime Jesus talks to a person, it's a helpful question to say, what did Jesus not say to the woman caught in adultery? Right? Helpful question. Here, uh, if, for those of you who uh, read or think mysteries, um, the person you can learn this from, it's called an argument from silence. An argument from silence is not a very strong argument in general, unless you expected there to be a noise. Sherlock Holmes is famous uh, for the dog that did not go bark in the night. You remember this? There was a robbery, and the dog always barks if a stranger comes near. But somebody broke into the house, and the dog did not bark. So what do we know about the person who broke into the house? The dog knew him, right? Because you would have expected the dog to bark if it was a stranger. The same is true here. In Genesis, 
the, 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 the Hebrews just points out that Genesis does not record a genealogy. It does not record a length of life or death. And that doesn't mean much to us. But if we need to remember that every other important person in Genesis gets a genealogy, that there are whole chapters of listing out begats and begats and begats. That everybody who's anybody is the son of so-and-so, the son of so-and-so, the son of so-and-so. And so it's, and even more often uh, in Genesis, we see a list will say, uh, so-and-so was born, they lived 108 years, and then they died. And then their son was born, and he lived 147 years, and then he died. You see a list of how long they lived, and then they died. And then when the priests are instituted, when the priests are instituted, we see a list of how long the priests served, and then they died, and who took over after them. These things are really important in the Bible. But here with Melchizedek, we know he's a priest. We know he's a king. We know he's important. But we don't get these things, these things that every other important gets. And so the author says, wow, that's kind of in- interesting. And so he starts to point out the parallel that, J- that Jesus has no ultimate, in, in the ultimate sense, Jesus has no earthly mother or father. That Jesus is the, begot- the only begotten son, the eternal son of God the Father, begotten from the Father from all eternity. That Jesus has no beginning and no end. That he's the Alpha and the Omega. That Jesus doesn't pass down his priesthood. He starts to see these parallels and he gets excited. And then he goes on to this. Because he's starting to say, whoa, think about this. We've got to love that he says this, right? Verse (laughs) 4. I love it. Verse 4 he says, just think about this for a second. Stop, think. How great is this man Melchizedek? Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now the law requires the descendants of Levi who become priests to collect a tenth from the people, that is from their fellow Israelites, even though they are descended from Abraham as well. This man, however, did not trace his descent from Levi, and yet he collected a tenth from Abraham. And Melchizedek blessed Abraham, Abraham. Abraham, the man with the promises. And without doubt, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In the one case, the tenth is collected by people who will die. But in the other case, to him who is declared to be living. One might even say that Levi, who collected the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham. Because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. Abraham. That's a lot of ancient ways of talking, but he's, he's baffled. So think about how important this guy Melchizedek has to be.
Right? Hold on a second. Who could be greater? Who could be greater? But yet Melchizedek is greater. And then he starts to say this crazy thing. He starts to trace out this tithing stuff. And this may not make a whole lot of sense to you, but tithing is really important to the Bible and to God and ought to be to us. But he says later when the law was we see is how to read the Bible. Write it down. Summarize it. 
ask, what does it say? Ask, what does it not say? And then, what does it mean? Write, summarize, say, not say. What does it mean? That's just Bible study. And Hebrews did it in front of us. And all of a sudden, we start to see that this one man who appeared as a middle of nowhere gives us a, 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 an interpretive framework, a lens for understanding the greatness of God. You understand that Melchizedek is the only person in the Old Testament who gets to be a priest and a king. One other man tries, a dude named Saul. You might have heard of him, a king named Saul. I'll stop saying dude. I probably won't. Saul is supposed to be waiting on the priest, a man named Samuel, to come and make sacrifice before going to battle. But he gets impatient and he says, forget it, I'll be my own priest. Hand me the knife. Hand me the bell. Take it away. And God rejects him and the priest becomes a man. Not yet. Because Jesus is the king who defeats evil, but he's the priest who saves us. And I've been trying to teach this to my son, Jack, because Jack is obsessed with Lego. And the Lego world is really cool with Lego. We've got these bags of Lego Faith, right? We've got them all the time. Jack got them all the time out of the house. Florida has a, 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 a pool with surprise like that. We need you. We need your word. We need your meal. Come. Feed us with your spirit. 
if there's someone here today who's just seeing the depth of your word and realizes they have not given you the mind, they've applied their mind to, to NASCAR racing or to, to baking or to their business or to the ins and outs of something, but they've never applied their full intellectual capabilities to your word. And they just want to repent. Now's a good time to repent. And there's somebody who's just said, I've never given God my best of anything, my mind, my life, my, my effort, my will, but I want to give God everything I am. Right now is a good time for that. And you can do it with a simple prayer like this. God, I admit I've been living my life my way for me. And I realize now that that's sin. But I believe you died on a cross, Jesus, to save me. And so I commit to following you the rest of my life. I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, not